These are the sounds of a city centre street in Hull. Whitefriar Gates, to be precise. It's a sunny Monday lunchtime, and actually there are dozens and dozens of people out and about. It seems not all of them are out spending money, though. The week after M&S closed, I had my worst trading week ever, when it should be one of my best. That's Rich Sharp Wilson. He runs Bean and Nothingness. Like many shopkeepers, he's concerned about the closure of Marks and Spencer. He's wondering what will happen to his business now Boots the Chemist have condensed their operation into just one large shop in the city's newest shopping centre. I'm Jerome Whittingham, editor of Hull as This. I've been chatting to people exploring what can be done to reinvigorate retail in the city centre. Over the next half an hour, we'll be hearing from shopkeepers, all confidently trying out new ventures. We'll be dipping into history for ideas. We'll be tackling tax and the business rates conundrum. And you'll hear one of our local MPs talking very passionately about foliage. There are solutions. And these solutions to the so-called decline of the high street are going to be fuelled by the spirit of shopkeepers like Rich. Because, whilst they're rightly concerned about how their businesses are being impacted, they're also resolutely determined to do something about it. The way I see it is, it isn't necessarily the closing of M&S per se, it's more the kind of media circus around the whole death of white frigate narrative that is turning people away from coming down here and supporting the independence that everyone claims they want to see down here. The irony. Uh, I'm one of the few that actually kind of goes, no, we need to kind of dig our heels in and make this happen because we are here as, as, as has been said, the vanguard of kind of the regeneration of the area. Uh, if we go, it's just going to get worse. I mean economically, investors aren't going to come down here and invest big money in the area if people like ourselves aren't able to survive. There was a report came out. It was the ex-CEO of Iceland Foods. It was a kind of think tank report about the high street and how retail is dying. And one of the things he said was, uh, we need more arts, culture and um, leisure-based industries on the high street. And And that was exactly my plan. So that's why I kind of stuck my flag in the ground and took the risk of coming down White Frigate. So the basis of your business is you're a coffee shop, but over this last year you've actually tried different activities to attract people into the shop. Which of those activities have actually worked, which haven't? Uh, What's worked mostly is when I've put on um, good events, uh, music-wise, Uh, We've, 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 particularly long weekend events when we've done things like Rock Against Racism and We Shall Overcome and and, and, and big, uh, lots of artists and acts on. Uh, Those have worked really well and brought in um, lots of, lots of people. And we've, it brings life to the area and it's kind of, and it is what I'm, it is what people are screaming out for when you look on social media and people say what they want to see down White Forget, this is what we're providing it's about how do we reach out to all of those people to go, look, this it's happening. It is really starting to happen down here on White Frigate. And you need to come down here and, and see, just come and see what we're doing. And, you know, if it's not your thing, fine. But at least just come and have a look. Rich isn't the only city centre business digging heels in and trying something new. Here's Julie Allen of JE Books in Hepworth's Arcade in the Old Town. 
We opened September the 19th, 2018. I've done six months now. What gave you the confidence to open a bookshop? Well, first things first, I turned 50 last year, so that was a big significant change in my life. And I think sometimes you just got to try things. But in terms of selling books, I think the days of Kindle are numbered. I think years ago people thought, oh, Kindle's going to take over from books soon. Personally, my angle is that if I'm going to compete with Amazon especially, as a small independent the, the best thing I can offer is, is like a friendly service and a good customer service. And, and you will find this around here. People have been doing it for donkey's years. They know the score. They've been doing it for a long time. I do think there's something in the air, you know, for bookshops, for independent bookshops and for people wanting to come back to retail. I know we can say otherwise about the empty shop units in a lot of cities. Don't forget down here and in the market, we got shortlisted for the best British high street as well in September. So the number of people who come down here who aren't from all, who are day trippers, or they've seen relatives. Or, so people are coming from City of Culture as well. A lot have said, you know, City of Culture put us on the map. So I think, you know, it's that time to reap the rewards from that, really, you know, that we, we should be confident about this city. I think that's the way forward, you know, to have confidence, really, even if you don't feel it. So, but to have confidence, you know, we have got a good product here. We've got a lovely city. We're in a lovely area. People do like coming here. We're surprised because we live here. But yes, honestly, <laughs> it, is, it is a good thing. I think the old town is such a popular place. People love it so much. The number of tour groups that come down here as well, and they love it, they really love it. So we've, we've got something to sell around here. And let's have just one more quick example of a city centre business that's no stranger to challenges, changes and taking risks. Yes, my name's Mark Carter. I'm from Huller Balloon. We supply balloons for all parties in Hull and East Yorkshire. You've just opened a new shop on Spring Street. Yeah. Why have you had the confidence to open a new shop? Uh, well, basically, uh, believing in our business, that's the most important thing. Uh, trying our best and at least giving it another shot, especially after losing our uh, Trinity Market stall. Uh, we did believe in the Trinity Market. We did think people would be going there shopping, uh, but the food market seems to be doing a lot better than the normal market. We love this town and uh, we need to have things. What does bring younger people as well as tourists to White Brigade? So, so you say bringing tourists into the city yeah. but tourists are here for leisure activities. Yes. They're not exactly yeah. spending money in retail, is that true? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, postcards with Kingston upon Hull on would sell quite well. You're a very uh, niche retailer and that yeah. you're selling balloons, party products, that sort of thing. Yeah. Is it better for a retailer to be so niche? I'd certainly say, yeah. I mean, basically, uh, you can't get blown up balloons on the internet. I love this town and I love the city centre. Of course, I'm stating the obvious. But the great thing about shopkeepers and retailers is that they are the very embodiment of enterprise. They're solutions-focused, they're opportunists, they're even imaginative and creative. The whole City of Culture project in 2017 showed us how creativity in the arts could be a catalyst for regeneration and enterprise. But actually, that's always been the case here in Hull. So I'm Esther Johnson. I'm from Hull. I'm an artistic filmmaker um, and I started a project. It's a social history arts project called Ships in the Sky. And the project is really to look at the social history and uh, people's memories of the what I think is wonderful uh, Hull Central, what was the Cowa um, and the amazing um, 66 by 64 foot uh, mural on the front of there which is called Three Ships by Alan Boyson. So we're looking at people's memories of the building 
for all its iterations. So um, the building was uh, originally a co-op. It later became a BHS, an indoor market, and also it had uh, three nightclubs. So whilst it was the co-op, there was the Skyline Ballroom, and that later became Bailey's, and then uh, Romeo's and Juliet. So a really important sort of central, whole central, a bit of Hull's history, really, from um, the post-war period, um, right up until uh, BHS closed in 2016. Okay, so I'm really <laughs> interested in uh, the shopping experience. What are people telling you about shopping um, in all of those iterations um, in the sort of 1960s and 70s? What are their sort of fond memories? So, well, we've spoken to um, shoppers, but also uh, workers, particularly through the, the co-op period. So that would be in the 60s. Um, I mean, the, the building was uh, built, uh, I've actually spoken to the architect of the building, E.P. Andrews, and I don't know if you know much about uh, the building of co-ops, but they did generally build um, f with the best, highest quality materials possible. A lot of their personal buildings were really innovative in the sort of solutions that came to like the new sh shopping experience, if you like. So it was quite space age, the building, but it's also very, very grand. So people do talk about the grand experience of going there, the, the, the marble, um, and there was like a, a walkway above the main central shopping area. And it was a massive, massive door. I mean, it's five floors. The co-op um, aimed to provide people from the cradle to the grave and provide everything that they might need, um, every modern convenience, if you like. Uh, so it sold pretty much everything. So it was, uh, was it a multiple use building? It wasn't just retail, uh, were, the, were the coffee shops, that sort of thing in there Yeah, too? there was, yeah, so there was a cafe, there was a restaurant up um, where the Skyline Ballroom was. So at the top of the building, there's something called a, a, um, a handkerchief dome. So it's quite a unique architectural feature. If you can imagine a handkerchief, a knotted handkerchief hat, it's kind of that um, shape made out of concrete. And at the time that was built, there was only one other in the world, and that was in the Kremlin. And underneath there, there was um, the Skyline Ballroom, but there was also a restaurant. And um, that, you know, there was kind of a posh side of the restaurant, and then there was a cafe for, for everyday shoppers. And again, I mean, it was very beautiful sort of surroundings, really considered architecture. And also um, Alan Boyson, who, who um, was the artist of the Three Ships, Isaac also created a, a wonderful piece of art called the, the Fish Mural, just outside the, the um, actual restaurant and the ballroom. So again, it was about, um, it was an, it was, it's about shopping and having a day out as an event, not just, you know, sh shopping as like a secondary thing. It was like, you know, a, a proper day out, a grand day out in beautiful surroundings. So when people are asked this question of um, how do we reinvigorate um, retail in the city centre, people are saying we need more leisure time activities, we need on-street entertainment, we need the streets to be more welcoming, more perhaps even an artistic setting. Was there any sense when Alan Boyson was commissioned to do uh, the Ships in the Sky, the Three Ships mural, 
Was there any sense that um, he was being asked to create a more artistic city centre and that that would actually attract shoppers into the city centre? Well, um, the co-op did um, aspire to bring... In the post-war period, they commissioned a lot of public art on and within their buildings and their... They kind of aspired to bring the community together together through art. So, I mean, me growing up in Hull, the Three Ships has always been like this amazing central um, marker of Hull to me. It was one of the things that made me really want to study art. Um, I've always seen it as a very hopeful um, and inspiring design. And and I think the really important... um, beacons if you like of of the built environment I mean Hull just to me wouldn't be the same without it it's unique it's unmissable it's um you know you, if you come to Hull on the train you get off the train and and there it is you walk up the street and there it is and it's like you've arrived in Hull. What are people telling you about the actual shopping experience? We've got kind of general answers, and and the thing is, is I've done so many of the interviews, but then uh, the library has done so many of the interviews, and most of the interviews I've done, I've been with like the co-op window dressers, for instance. Let yeah. me interrupt there Go because on. you you mentioned uh, the co-op window dressers. Now, yeah. actually, that is um, I've, I've come across this quite regularly in the research I've been doing for this podcast. Uh, the yeah. way shops present themselves. That's always been really, really so important um, yeah. to their enterprise. Tell me what the, the co-op shop window dressers were telling you. So we've met three uh, really lovely um, prior. They, they were the co-op window dressers in the 60s. And um, they seem to have had a wonderful time there. I mean, they were all really artistic. Um, I think they would have all loved to have gone to art college. But like many women of that time, um, had to go out and get a job Um, but they were lucky in that they could you know use their artistic skills to create all these incredible window displays in the co-op and they've said that there was a little bit of um, competition between the other stores in Hull particularly between um, House of Fraser or Hammonds um, or Bins even so, so they kind of, kind of, there's a bit of one-upmanship between who had the best window. A, a really interesting thing, and I've, I've found this through through both the window dresses, but also through lots of the research I've been doing and, and newspapers at the time, that the the co-op actually had one of the top ten best Santa grottos in the country. So. The, the window dressers have told us about how that was um, a massive thing each each year, the preparation for the Santa's Grotto. And believe it or not, they even used to have live animals in there. They had monkeys and bears. In the windows? <laughs> in the Santa's Grotto. Oh, gosh. <laughs> which is, is mental. I, I, say, I, li- I like um, you said earlier in the conversation um, that... Um, your artistic work was sort of inspired by the Boyson uh, mural and the like. And now you're saying uh, the, the, the co-op shop uh, window dressers were probably preferred to be artists, but they needed to pay their rent. So that's the yeah. line of work they took. So is perhaps one solution to the decline of retail in 
the city centre, for all of the artists in Hull to give up their artistic careers and, and nip into retail <laughs> instead. But, well, they might have to do a little bit of that. But but no, I mean, I think I think you you can see how um, in many cities they're, they're using empty shops as little pop-up spaces, um, whether that's for theatres or for artist studios or to do some poetry nights, etc. And I think it's about trying to adapt to all the different things that are out there now for people to choose from. You're listening to a Hull Is This podcast with me, Jerome Whittingham. We're looking at possible solutions to the decline of city centre shopping. Some answers, on the face of it, are straightforward. Simple, even. I think one of them is giving people easy access to cash machines. I've spoken before that there aren't that many cash machines, especially in the old town area. In fact, I think there's only one left there. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to buy and shop. That's Hull West and Hesel MP Emma Hardy. We'll be hearing more from Emma later. Other possible answers to the decline of city centre retail are a little bit more complicated. Like tax, for example. If I had a tenner for each time someone's told me how stifling business rates can be, well, I'd be able to open a shop of my own. My name is Adrian Smith. The business is Adrian Smith Rating, and I'm a business rates consultant. Basically, what I do is I advise businesses, business owners on business rate liability and a way of making sure that what rates they are paying isn't more than it should be. Is the business rate system as it stands a fair system for all businesses? The business rate system as it stands now, my personal view is that it isn't fair. Business rates has never been based on ability to pay. It's been based on the value of the property. And then there are adjustments to that potentially, depending on the type of business. I don't think it's fair because across the board, everybody doesn't have to pay a fair share. Because there are so many businesses that qualify for total exemption, which is great for them. But they can be next door to another property that doesn't qualify for anything. They could both have similar sort of businesses. They've both got similar overheads. One will potentially thrive because they haven't got that cost. And the other one, first of all, might have to lay off staff. Rates isn't the biggest killer, but it should be fair. Can a business make a challenge um, to get their business rates changed? The rateable value on a property, which is what the, the sort of starting point for a business rate bill comes from, can be challenged. There are the new procedures that came in in April 17 when the new rate system came out, called a check challenge appeal route. In very general terms, the first stage is what's known as a check. You as a ratepayer or your representative check the valuation that the valuation officer put on it. This can be seen online, but as with most things, not everybody's an expert in business rates. So they can see how the valuation's been put together. They can check the floor areas, supposedly, and send their valuation or their floor areas to the valuation office to have another look. They've potentially got up to 12 months to do that. If at the end of the 12 months they still haven't come back, you can then challenge that valuation. And to do that, you need to value it. You need to provide comparable properties, rental evidence, effectively a case, a legal type of case as to why that's wrong. And the valuation office again has up to 18 months to deal with that. So potentially looking at two and a half years, at that point, if it's still not been resolved, you can go to an appeal. So yes, things can be done about it. And the example I've given is probably one of the worst scenarios, but those are the legal timescales. 
Is government actually looking at the business rate system and planning any changes that might help businesses in the short term? The business rate system compared to how it was before the new system came in, there were well hundreds of thousands of challenges put in against rating assessments. One of the reasons being that it was relatively straightforward to do that. It is now completely different, very, very difficult. And the, the rate of challenge is very low. Part of the government see that as a, a victory because they use it to suggest sometimes that that suggests that the system is working far better. I would suggest that's not the case. But it's going to be difficult to convince a government, whoever they are, to change that system because the administration costs are now far lower. The return is still quite sizable and business rates is one of the most economically viable taxation forms that they've ever had, which is why it will probably always be with us. The only change that I can see that's merely significant is the the regularity that's what's known as revaluations are done. Previously, they used to be every five years, but they're looking now to move that to every year. The idea there being that the valuations that are done more reflect the economic climate on the rental basis. Say economic climate is probably the wrong word, but the rental basis is fixed effectively due to the climate. The problems I can see with that is that from my experience, it can take about a year or two to actually do the valuations by the valuation office in the first place. So if they're having to do it every year, it's going to have to rely more and more on computerized valuations as opposed to stand back and look. Nothing wrong with computers. I used to be involved with the IT system in the revenue, but a computer can't stand back and look at a property. So if you're in a property that's worth, for example, 50,000, somebody presses the button for next year and it comes up at 500,000, nobody's going to necessarily know that that's wrong until you get your bill. So it seems if business rates are crippling your business, um, you're better off either going back to your landlord and trying to renegotiate a lower rent or moving altogether to a smaller property. Is that right? It can be. The, I mean, the... If you can get a lower rent, that isn't going to reflect in the valuation or it's unlikely to, but it could sort of cushion those blows. I would try and get some advice from somewhere, um, ideally initially at no cost. And there are places that you can get that advice. Sadly, the valuation office won't do that now. They don't have the resources to do that now. So in the same way, if, if you were looking to maybe extend your shop and you wanted to be aware of what the financial implications of doing it, you used to be able to ring them up and they would be able to tell you or they'd be able to work it out and come back to you. They can't do that now. Is there any wiggle room at all with business rates? And if so, is it better to speak to a local government or, or a national helpline? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the, um, the line I would take for a business that are concerned about the rates, if the business is in financial hardship, they could contact the valuation office, question the value that's been placed on it and ask it to be investigated as a matter of priority. They can be dealt with in all sorts of different ways, but you are alerting the valuation office to the fact that there is a problem. My view is they do have a duty of care, so I would suggest that that might be a way forward. The other side of it, with regards to the actual rate bill, which is sent through by the council, speak to the council. Just make them aware of it. And I can't think of any council that I deal with around the country, and I do deal with them around the country, where there isn't some process to try and help. There you go. That was five minutes of totally free advice from perhaps the region's most outspoken business rates advisor. Many of the businesses that I visited and spoke with told me they felt they weren't being listened to 
or that they aren't being told enough about the work being done to re-energise the city centre. Maybe they have a point. I certainly found that the shopkeepers most confident about their business ventures seemed also to be the best connected. There's certainly more to be done about communicating the strategic development work that is taking place. I'll do what I can through Hull is This, of course. Let's hear more now from Emma Hardy, MP for Hull West and Hessel. She gave me a short update on the talks she and Hull City Council are having with Marks and Spencer. Well, what they were interested in was football and basically the amount of money that that particular store was making. And they concluded that the store was in the wrong place to be continue to be profitable for Marks and Spencer's and they shared some confidential data regarding costs and profit and, and that was a decision they reached which was very disappointing uh, for us here in Hull and so we had and continued to have conversations about where else would Marks and Spencer's like to be hopefully in their city centre and which situation would be the most preferable for them and, and those conversations are ongoing because we are, Hull is going to be one of the only cities that doesn't have a Marks and Spencer's and I think it's important that we do have some of the big brand shops as well as really, really encouraging our local independence as well. Emma also told me about another idea that she's clearly very excited about and this might be something we can all get behind. In fact, it could be quite ace. I mean, another thing that I'm really, really excited about, which I'm hoping is going to get the go-ahead soon, is to turn streets in Hull into living streets, where you introduce lots and lots of greenery and make them, make them beautiful places to live and to, and to be and to spend time in. And to me, White's a great, it's such a, it's a beautiful street if you just stand and look up at the old architecture and how can we encourage people to look up at what's around them and, and make it a place that people want to go and see because of what's happening there. You could create almost a story as you go down towards the market at the end, which is really popular, and what's happening at the Minster is a place people want to go and see and then through down to Humber Street. Well, the living street idea is, is um, I mean, there are some in Europe and they're, they're incredible. And it's when you sort of turn a street green and if you've ever sort of looked and seen buildings that are covered in plants and plants sort of everywhere, then it's so it has a dual purpose. One, they look beautiful, they look incredible. And two, they also improve the air and the you know, air quality in that area as well. Now, I mean, conversations are happening. I mean, we'll have to look into how practical these ideas are. But the idea of having something like that in Hull, I think, would be brilliant. I mean, it would be brilliant for Hull to be one of the first cities in the north with a living street as testament to our future as a, a renewable capital. I've enjoyed these conversations. I've spoken with business people that think creatively. I've spoken with creative people that are thinking more businesslike. It's here that we'll find the solutions that work. But no matter how passionate, resilient and innovative our city centre shopkeepers are, they won't succeed without us supporting them. As one managing director told me, our local independent businesses are the beating heart of the city. We can't afford to lose them.